Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Great. I tend to project loudly, so hopefully, um, hopefully you can hear me in the back. Um, I'm going to go ahead and get started right on time because I just have a ton of information I want to share with all of you. Um, I have been told that the, we have the room um, for a period of time after this talk. So um, if it, um, what I'd like to do, for those who wish to stay and ask a few questions, um, we have the ability to do so. So obviously, if you need to leave, um, feel free. But if you want to stay for a little uh, Q&A, Brad will be running a microphone around, and I'm happy to take um, your questions um, for a brief period of time. Um, a little bit of housekeeping. I'm told that uh, there, for anyone who wants APA uh, CEs, there's an orange sign-in sheet at, uh, at the desk, that, uh, at the entryway. So just know that you can sign that to get your CEs. Um, I'm just going to introduce myself. Uh, it's easier. I'm Beth Darnell. Um, wh what can I say that's most salient? I've been working with individuals with chronic pain for 15 years. Um, I had chronic pain when I was younger, and I tell my story in the first chapter of my first book. I don't share that when I work with um, patients, unless it's in a group format. Um, and then I do mention that, and I find that to be quite meaningful. Um, I have a doctoral degree in clinical psychology. Um, I'm a clinical professor at Stanford. I have 13 million in NIH and PCORI research awards, but some of my most important uh, expertise comes from my lived experience. So I uh, always like to share that. Um, what else can I say about me? I have not been working with individuals on a one-on-one -on -one basis. I have been called to expand access to psychological treatments. This is a fundamental uh, problem in the United States and really globally. Um, but while we have a lot of evidence to support uh, psychological strategies, behavioral strategies for pain management, for opioid reduction, one of the biggest issues in this country right now is that people don't necessarily have access to what works. And so I will share with you today some of my efforts to expand access to these evidence-based treatments. But before I do that, I want to dive in and just provide you with some of the, the evidence to support the treatments. So um, these are my disclosures. This is the um, funding that, uh, that I have and some of the consulting work that I do. All of the consulting work that I do with companies is focused on integrating behavioral strategies and also helping patients reduce reliance on opioids where appropriate. Um, I've offered, authored three books on pain and also opioid reduction. The first two are for patients. The third book is just out uh, last month. It's by the American Psychological Association. Um, and I was really pleased that they invited me to author this book um, because it's the first one, believe it or not, the first one through the American Psychological Association that's a broad-based overview on evidence-based psychological treatments and strategies to manage pain. It's a really practical book, and it's appropriate for all healthcare clinicians. Um, they, the APA actually gave me a flyer with a discount, so if any of you are interested in the book, um, pick up the flyer and be sure that you get your discount for that. Okay, so learning objectives. I'm just kind of going to blow through this because I think you guys have that um, all online. And all of the slides are available online as well. And I just want to get us right into the content. 
So, you know, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here because you're all at Pain Week and you have a good sense of the scope and the breadth of the problem of pain. Um, but just to refresh our memories, up to one in three individuals worldwide is living with ongoing pain of some type. And that range, ranges from, you know, sort of intermittent all the way to debilitating high-impact chronic pain. And this is true around the world. So it's not that we have more pain in the United States. We have just historically tended to treat it differently. Um, but it's pretty universal, these statistics. And, you know, beyond sort of the incidence and prevalence, we see that it confers tremendous suffering for the individuals, for their families, and for society, both, you know, just from social aspects and also in terms of economic burdens. So that $635 billion annually, that is um, attributed to medical costs and also lost productivity. So you've, I'm sure everyone has seen the uh, associations in the press between opioid use and overdose deaths. I always like to make very clear that the majority of those deaths are actually from illicit use of um, opioids that were um, from the street. It's illicit uh, fentanyl, carfentanil, et cetera. Um, and so, but a portion of those deaths are related to legitimate opioid prescriptions. And so while it is a fraction of what we see in the overall, it is very important. And one of the reasons why um, I underscore its importance is because it's really unique that some people might be harmed by a system that is attempting to help. And so this deserves uh, increased scrutiny amongst all of us as healthcare providers. What can we do to mitigate risks? Now, I'm not an addictionologist, and I don't speak on addiction. My interest over the years in terms of um, opioid reduction has simply been focused on what are the problems that may occur when opioids are taken exactly as prescribed exactly as prescribed, because these were the patients I was working with in the clinic, where they would come to me and they would just say, you know, this isn't necessarily working all that well. What are the other options? Or they would say, you know, I'm having problems with this. So I like to say right off the bat, here is my position on this. Opioids are beneficial for some patients, and we need to preserve prescribing privileges for clinicians so that the patients who need them have access to them. That said, there has been a climate of overprescribing, and so some people were only given opioids, and that's not a good plan. Um, opioids can be one part of an overall care plan, and unfortunately, we had a history of de-emphasizing some of these other treatments that could help people need and use less of those medications or potentially avoid them altogether. And that's beneficial simply because it's lower risk. So my work has really focused on some of these risks that occur when opioids are taken exactly as prescribed. So there's been a, an intense focus on how do we reduce opioid 
prescribing, and uh, the pendulum has definitely swung to the detriment of a lot of patients. But I also want us to recognize that it's, it's a much larger question than opioids or no opioids or how much opioids. We want to help our patients live better within the context of chronic pain and with complex medical conditions. So regardless of whether opioids are on the table or not, we must pay attention to this equation. How do we help people live better with the pain that they do have? So this has really been a focus um, nationally. The CDC, the Institute of Medicine, the National Pain Strategy, a lot of different agencies have called for better integration of psychological strategies, self-management strategies into pain care nationally, recognizing that this is simply low risk pain care and that we should be integrating these strategies um, as much as possible. This sort of is a reflection of what we call the biopsychosocial model of pain. Probably um, most of you are well familiar with the biopsychosocial model of pain treatment. But in fact, when we take a look at how pain is generally treated in the United States, such is not the case. There's an overemphasis in the biomedical model where the patient will go to primary care or even to a pain clinician. And there's very much a focus on treating the pain from a medical perspective. And psychology is you know, potentially addressed, but much, much, much further down in the treatment plan. And I argue that that's to the detriment of our patients, that if we can better integrate psychology on the front end, we can help our patients have an improved treatment response to all of the medical treatments we will try for them. So what historically happens is the patient has pain, and, and there's an emphasis on the local site of where the pain is experienced. Of course this is important. Of course we need to do medical exam and be focused on that. Um, but in fact, we know that pain is much more than just that noxious sensory experience, in this case, in the back. That the, in, the uh, International Association for the Study of Pain defines pain as a negative or noxious sensory and emotional experience. And so I just want you to observe that psychology is built into the definition of pain. It is baked into what we know as the pain experience. But isn't it odd that we don't treat it that way? That often we ignore half of the definition of pain, but then we wonder why pain treatment outcomes are suboptimal. And I argue that this is a large part of the reason, that we need that integrated approach. So what I'm going to be sharing with you over the course of the next minutes I have with you is that we want to be focusing on treating the full definition of pain and not just that um, biomedical component. We want to apply the lowest risk treatments first. Sort of makes sense, but often isn't the case. We want to engage patients as active participants in their pain care because the evidence shows that this is what gains them the best outcomes in the long run. 
We want to equip patients to best control their experience of pain. And this is really the realm of pain psychology and behavioral medicine, equipping our patients with skills and tools so that they can help themselves. This, in turn, enhances medical treatment outcomes. And if opioid reduction is a focus of the patient's care plan, it will facilitate their ability to engage in opioid tapering and their response to opioid tapering, if that is a part of the care plan. So I just want to take a, a little bit of a step back and, and go into some background about how these concepts um, relate. And I want to start with um, a fundamental understanding of relationship between pain and what we formally know to be psychological disorders. So, you know, DSM diagnoses, depression, um, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder. We see that when individuals have or are living with ongoing pain, that it, they're much more likely to be diagnosed or to experience depression, anxiety, PTSD. This is sort of intuitive, I think, because we all know that living with pain is very difficult. Lives are changed. Um, individuals may have to stop working. They're not able to engage with friends and family as they used to. There's a lot of losses in living with chronic pain. And so unsurprisingly, we would see that um, this could then uh, have some downstream consequences in terms of mental health. But when we look at the flip side, when we look at people who have a mental health condition, we see that they are much more likely to go on to acquire chronic pain prospectively. And so that's, that's really curious, you know, that the presence of depression or anxiety means that you're more likely to develop chronic pain in the future. So we see that there's this bi-directional relationship between psychology and pain, but in fact, it's, it's much more extensive than that. It's really that there are shared mechanisms between these experiences, and that some of them include, th you know, the immune system, um, uh, gut to brain communication, um, for instance, um, neuroimmune factors, and that these are these coexist and impact each other. And so pain is fundamentally a brain-based phenomenon. It's a product of the nervous system, the brain and the spinal cord. And unsurprisingly, you know, even though we often don't think of it as, as being necessarily brain-based, um, it's more likely that we consider the fact that our emotions and our psychological experiences are seated um, in the brain and in the nervous system. So of course there is much overlap and much crosstalk that occurs between the two. And this accounts for much of what we recognize as being the individual differences in the experience of pain. That, you know, curiously, we could take two different individuals and we could expose them both to a standardized pain stimulus, bring them into the lab and place the heat thermode on the palm of their hand at a standardized level. And it's meant to evoke pain, to elicit pain from people. And so the gentleman may be exposed to this pain stimulus, and he may say, well, my pain's a four. Whereas um, this woman may experience that same stimulus, and she may say, my pain's a seven. 
and they're both experiencing the same thing. Why is that? Well, uh, individual differences in pain are accounted for by a whole host of factors. It's sex and gender, it's race, it's socioeconomic status, it's all of these things. And what we see in the literature is that psychological factors profoundly drive individual differences in the experience of pain. And so when we talk about you know, the pain scale and a range zero to 10, and you just ask someone to give you a number, in a way, it's kind of a curious thing. They're definitely communicating to you what their experience is in that moment. But what we don't know on balance is everything that goes into that number all of the stress of their lives or whether they have a psychological condition or whether they have a stressful interaction with their physician, all of that actually goes into that number as well, but it's less appreciated. And so pain is quite complex. And some of these um, factors that influence pain include the context in which we experience the pain, the meaning that we give it, our thoughts, our emotions, our mood, the amount of attention that we are giving to our pain, the amount of distress that it elicits, and whether or not we have a skill set to manage that distress. And so I just want to um, give you an example of this. Um, our expectations about whether or not we're going to experience pain or how painful it's going to be profoundly influences how much pain we actually have. And so this, these expectations for pain can either provide us with analgesia, this is what's known as the placebo effect. If we think that something is gonna help our pain, it is much more likely to help us if we believe it to be so. However, if we believe that something is going to be harmful and work against us, it actually has the capacity to amplify pain. This is what we call nocebo, the nocebo responses. And so I just, for a minute, want you to consider what's happening around the country to patients who are being told, you know, we need, we're taking your opioids away or we need to start tapering you right away, you don't have a choice forced tapering and how that is amplifying nocebo responses and actually amplifying pain itself because of the distress that it's causing. I'm giving a workshop on opioid reduction this afternoon, so I'll be talking about these concepts in much greater, deal, uh, much greater detail then. So I just want to give you another example of how some of these concepts fit together, how our expectations and our beliefs influence not only the amount of pain we feel, but also how well opioids work for us or not. So this was um, a really elegant study conducted by Irene Tracy and her group out of the UK. And what they were interested in studying was simply expectations for pain relief. So this is a psychological experiment in which they took a group of individuals and they were all given uh, three, three different conditions in an experiment. And all of the conditions included the same two things. Number one, it, it included pain, um, pain provocation. So they put a heat thermode on the palm of people's hands and they were meant to elicit a painful experience. What they also did was they placed an IV in the arms of the participants in this study. And they told people that they were receiving remifentanil, a powerful opioid painkiller, in one of the experiments. 
and they said, you know, you're going to get your pain testing, but you're getting the opioid medication, so you'll be fine. You won't really notice much. In the second condition, they give them the pain testing, but they say, you know, we're just giving you salt water or saline in your IV, so you're going to experience more pain, but you'll be okay. And in the third condition, they, sold, they told the participants, um, with the pain testing, we're going to give you a medication that's going to make your pain worse. Um, you won't be harmed, but we want to prepare you that your pain is going to be a lot worse. So just, you know, gear up for that, basically. Um, so everyone in the study got the same three conditions, but and the only thing that the participants, uh, that the researchers are manipulating are the participants' beliefs, because in fact, everybody got remifentanil in all three conditions. They just didn't know that. They, were, they manipulated their perceptions. And what the researchers found was that when patients um, were told that they received remifentanil and they were given remifentanil, the analgesic benefit of remifentanil was doubled relative to when patients believed they weren't getting anything at all, when they were just getting the saline but they actually were getting the opioid medication. So believing you're getting it and getting it doubles the analgesic benefit relative to when people believe they weren't getting anything. And when people um, were told that they were getting something that would be harmful, it actually abolished the analgesic benefit of the remifentanil. Now, this is an experiment conducted in healthy volunteers, but it illustrates to us the power of psychology to influence what we feel and how we respond to treatments, including opioid treatments. Um, they also correlated this with brain imaging and, were, and showed that how the pain processing was altered and that when patients were reporting having increased pain, in the condition where they believed they weren't getting the opioid, it literally altered their experience and they're able to demonstrate this quite concretely. And along those lines, you know, I again bring this back to what is happening nationally to people who are being forced tapered and they believe, you know, they believe that they're being harmed. How is this operating for them? And this is, of course, an ethical consideration for all of us to consider. So we don't bring people into the lab in everyday life, but I do want to talk about how we can translate some of these principles into the patients that we do see on a daily basis. And I was talking about how thoughts and beliefs and um, our attention impacts um, not only our pain, but how we respond to pain treatments. And a really salient psychological construct that operates in um, most individuals to some degree or another is something called pain catastrophizing. And, um, you know, my disclaimer is it's a horrible term. I, sometimes when I work with patients, I'll say negative pain mindset because that's um, better received by individuals living with pain. Pain catastrophizing has been studied for about 30 years. It is um, a psychological construct that's uh, essentially a negative cascade of thoughts and emotions related to actual or anticipated pain. 
So you don't even have to be experiencing pain in the moment to catastrophize. You could be worried about future pain. What if I get a migraine later today? I'm not able to go to my sessions, or I'm not able to give my talk, etc. And so again, you know, this can be something in the future. Um, many of our patients experience pain catastrophizing from time to time. Here's, here's the actual, this is how we measure it. This is the pain catastrophizing scale. It's 13 items. These are the actual items of the pain catastrophizing scale. So um, I'm just going to read off a couple. I think probably those of you in the back might be able to see this, but um, I can't seem to keep the pain out of my mind. I anxiously want the pain to go away. There's nothing I can do to reduce the intensity of my pain. So feelings of helplessness, uh, rumination on pain, magnification of pain. We administer the pain catastrophizing scale to people um, in clinic to get a sense of what is their psychological disposition in, in relation to their pain. I started the talk by talking about mental health conditions, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder. This in and of itself is not a, is not a mental health condition. This is just simply pain psychology for our patients. How equipped do they feel? How confident do they feel to manage their pain and some of the factors around their pain? This is a really important um, piece of information for us to assess and to appreciate as clinicians because it identifies an important thera therapeutic target for us to then be steering our patients in the right direction. So here's an example of an individual who is engaging in some catastrophizing. There's nothing I can do about my pain. I know it's only going to get worse. Now, in fact, you know, sort of hearkening back to Irene Tracy's research and the research of others, this is quite detrimental because if we if that is our expectation, we're much more likely to have that be our experience. So this is an important opportunity for us to focus on that and to treat that. And here's another reason why. The 25 to 30 years of scientific literature on pain catastrophizing has really revealed it to be one of the most important uh, prognostic indicators for pain, the trajectory of pain, and for treatment response. Um, unsurprisingly, it's associated with pain intensity, um, with opioid prescription, with, with disability. This is a really important one. Uh, it actually predicts the development of chronic pain in healthy individuals and also following an acute back pain episode. And so this is... Um, also true in the surgical realm. We see that um, when patients, you know, 230 million individuals undergoing surgery each year around the world, and we see that the most important factors that predict post-surgical outcomes aren't necessarily what we would expect. Um, it's not the surgeon, it's not the surgery type, it's not disease characteristics. We see that in many studies um, that catastrophizing measured pre-surgically is the best predictor for post-surgical pain, post-surgical opioid use, and recovery. Um, so this here showing results from a meta-analysis over 5,000 patients, um, and again, pain catastrophizing being shown to be the best predictor of post-surgical pain. 
and of prolonged opioid use after surgery. So that prolonged opioid use after surgery is simply you know, an illustration that pain is persisting. And so how does this how does this function? How does this all operate? Well, we see neuroimaging research really provides us with um, a really nice basis for understanding that what's happening when we're engaging in catastrophizing, ruminating on the pain, focusing on the worst aspects of it, having difficulty thinking about anything but the pain and how awful it is, that this is engaging our attention and um, also affective regions of the brain that are associated with pain. And so we're literally amplifying pain processing in the nervous system in real time. This is shown in fMRI studies where we can see in real time that when individuals catastrophize, it lights up the regions of the brain associated with pain processing, literally growing the pain experience. And we also see that this sets um, a foundation for the neural progression, a, a basis for the neural uh, progression, sorry, a neural basis for the progression of pain from the acute state to the chronic state. So it really um, is one important pathway by which we see this transition occur. So when I'm working with individuals who have pain, and in my books, this is the um, sort of the metaphor that I use to tell the story of how this operates, that um, you're living with pain and, and imagine that this is a representation of your pain in your life. Um, you know your pain well, you, it's, you live with it on a daily basis. When we engage in catastrophizing, it's like picking up a can of gasoline and pouring it on that fire. It amplifies pain processing in the moment. And of course, nobody wants more pain. Nobody wants to do this. But this is what happens. This is what can happen unwittingly if we don't have the right skills and information to know how to put the can of gasoline down. Now, I told my story that you know I had chronic pain when I was a youngster and in my uh, early 20s. And I was a really good pain catastrophizer. I didn't want more pain, but I didn't know what to do about it. I didn't know how all these pieces fit together. And most people don't. Now, I can teach people how to stop catastrophizing. It's not going to take away their medical condition, of course. But I can help them get back to here, where they're just living with their pain in a more controlled way, rather than having this be their experience. And this turns out to be a critical level of control for the patients that we're working with. Um, everything that we're doing as providers is helping our patients become more autonomous, to have greater agency around what is a highly distressing condition, painful condition, and to help equip them to steer their lives in the direction where they want them to go. Just to give you a little more information, this is um, a study of migraineurs that was really interesting. You, you may have heard that uh, chronic pain, the neuroimaging literature suggests uh, across multiple pain conditions that living with chronic pain is associated with some atrophy of the brain. And we see that here in this study as well. But what was interesting was that they also took a look at catastrophizing and showed that that, that atrophy that we see related to just the duration of pain that somebody has is greatly amplified if the individual is engaging in a high degree of catastrophizing as well. 
well. And so we can just think of that as the more that we steer our brain to focus on pain, the more pain we actually experience, the more opportunity there is for pain to exert its negative physiological and psychological influence on us. Um, and then lastly, this was a study that um, we conducted at Stanford University taking a look at the brains of individuals with chronic pain. And what we found was that they're different from individuals who don't have chronic pain. We found that there's an overcoupling between the central executive network and the amygdala. And what's important to know about that is, is simply that there was something of a signature there that made the brains of individuals with chronic pain look like a person who has an anxiety disorder. But nobody in the study had an anxiety disorder because we excluded for it. We excluded for it. And so that, then when we took a closer look at what was driving that effect, it was the rumination subscale of catastrophizing. So again, showing the importance of this psychological construct and how it can literally shape the functioning of the brain. Okay, so we see that pain catastrophizing shapes the neural functioning and patterns. Oh, I should have mentioned in that last study where we were um, looking at healthy versus people with chronic pain, one of the things that was most important about that study was that we weren't studying people when they were experiencing pain. We weren't evoking pain. We were looking at their brains at rest. And so we call that the default mode network. So if you're just sitting here right now and you're relaxing, kind of vegging out, you defocus your eyes, um, that's the default mode network where your brain is relaxed. And what we, we found was that when people with chronic pain, even when their brains are relaxed, they're functioning differently. And we believe that's because their neural patterns have been trained in a certain way. And this also suggests that we can train them in the other direction as well. Okay, so catastrophizing, it shapes the brain at rest, um, sets the stage for prolonged symptoms, and what we see is that ultimately it primes the nervous system for future pain and makes us more sensitive to future pain. Now, I describe pain as being our harm alarm. It's designed to get our attention, to alert us that there is um, you know, something that is a threat to our survival. And so pain is very effective in getting our attention, right? I mean, we all want to escape pain, and we are born with the motivation to escape pain. And it works really well. You know, if I place my hand on a hot stove and I feel pain, I know exactly what to do to get away from it. But what happens when the pain is coming from inside you? Well, that harm alarm is still ringing, but you can't run away from your migraine or your low back pain, unfortunately but it's still sending those signals. And of course that elicits distress. Of course that's confusing. Of course that brings up a whole host of emotions that you know, really require a skill set to be able to manage and work with, to be able to calm the nervous system so that it is less reactive to the ongoing signals that no longer have survival value of any kind. They're simply problematic. And so while we are all born with the motivation to escape pain, we are not born with the understanding 
for how to modulate pain or the distress that it causes us. This is learned, and this is the realm of pain psychology, behavioral medicine, self-management. You know, pick your pick your term, um, but this is uh, these are skills, information, and treatment that's delivered in the group format or all individually, one-on-one. -on -one. And I'm just going to touch on, um, you know, what some of the evidence-based um, treatments for chronic, oh, did this, there we go, sometimes it advances on its own, um, evidence-based behavioral interventions for chronic pain. I am listing kind of the bigger, um, the best studied categories here. These are um, some of the ones that I, I go into detail in my book. Um, Cognitive behavioral therapy has the most evidence behind it. It's, the be it's, it's simply the best studied, is, is what um, I like to say. Acceptance and commitment therapy is, um, a, technically, it's a variant of CBT, but it's really gained a lot of uh, traction and a lot of following um, in recent years and is better studied because it engages individuals and very specifically around their values and, and focusing on um, value-based decision-making. And um, so that, again, I'm, hopefully there are at least one, if not multiple talks on each of the, these modalities here. So I don't have time to go into them per se, but I'm simply bringing these up as evidence-based treatments. Now, I mentioned that CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is, uh, happens to be the best studied because it's been around the longest. And um, I just want to give you some idea, if you're not already um, kind of content experts in this space, what it involves. And so these are typical components uh, that are covered in pain CBT, whether it's individual or whether it's group. So individuals learn information about different domains where they can apply that information so that they can gain better control over many of the factors that directly influence how much pain they feel on a daily basis. Um, a lot of different skills and techniques that are covered, um, not just in CBT, but across our different evidence-based treatments for pain. These include diaphragmatic breathing, progressive muscle relaxation, pain education, of course, being a critical component of all of our treatments, not just psychological, but the medical, physical therapy, et cetera. Uh, cognitive uh, restructuring, very specific to, um, to CBT, mindfulness, biofeedback, and meditation, also evidence-based techniques. And ultimately, with these skills and techniques, we equip the people that we work with to adopt a different mindset around the pain. And it's not simply um, a mindset where they're telling themselves something different. They actually gain the confidence and the self-efficacy to better manage their pain. So here she's saying there's several things I can do right now uh, to soothe myself and feel better. This is a vast departure from the gentleman who was saying there's, my pain is awful and there's nothing I can do, and he was in that state of amplification. 
And so this illustrates where we want to get people from that, you know, that helpless state of amplification. We want, to, we want to empower them and equip them with skills so that they can steer themselves to that calmer state where they're literally calming their own nervous systems and reaping the benefits of that. So the regulation of thoughts, emotions, stress, and arousal is key. It's really critical to the behavioral management of pain. And ultimately, if we're better able to manage pain, then we, ne we need fewer pills and procedures to do that for us. And that's, that's really where this all fits together. So we see that regular use of skills dampens pain processing in the brain. It reduces physiological hyperarousal. It reduces cognitive and emotional responses that amplify pain. Um, it entrains positive neural patterns, and it extinguishes those negative ones. It facilitates movement and activation, and ultimately, this is what we're really looking for, that increased self-efficacy. So, I'm going to see if this video is going to play. I'm going to give it a... Oh, it's not doing it. Okay. Well, I'm really sorry. So this is such a cool video. I'll just have to explain it to you. What happens, this was a, a real-time fMRI video of somebody that we put into the scanner that we had uh, catastrophize and then use skills that uh, were adaptive to help self-soothe. And what you see is that when they're in that negative pain mindset or over-focusing negatively on their pain, you see it in real-time amplifying pain processing in the brain, and then you see that de-amplification when the skills are used. And this is a really powerful video that uh, can be used to explain the concepts to patients who may not understand or fully buy in to, well, why am I being sent to the pain psychologist? You know, and, and getting back to that idea that um, if we integrate psychology on the front end, we can help steer um, physiology, biology, we can help individuals steer themselves towards relief instead of towards uh, greater pain. So um, cognitive behavioral therapy also addresses some very specific psychological factors such as fear avoidance behaviors, which is really common in the people that we work with. I mean, the harm alarm rings and you feel pain, and boy, it sends a pretty powerful message to stop moving. When in fact, what we all know is that movement, appropriate movement, is one of the most therapeutic um, modalities for um, recovery from pain and from disability, but we have to help our patients get there, and so this is where psychology can play a role. Um, and so then this was a really elegant study where uh, David Seminowitz and his colleagues wanted to look at the impact of CBT on uh, the brains of individuals with chronic pain, so they scanned their brains before they underwent CBT and they scanned their brains 11 weeks later when they finished treatment. And what they found was that before CBT treatment, individuals with chronic pain had volumetric deficits in the regions of the brain associated with pain control. Following treatment, a brief 11 weeks later of using these skills, they demonstrated substantial volumetric increases in those regions of the brain associated with pain control. 
And when they took a deeper look at the data, they found that those volumetric increases in the brain, they're literally growing the structure of their brain, were entirely mediated by reductions in pain catastrophizing. So if we can help our patients learn some basic skill sets and apply them, we can help them change the function of the brain, the structure of the brain. And, that, and those improvements correlated with patient report of reduced pain at the end of treatment. Now, very few people can go to eight or 11 weeks of CBT, and so I developed a single session class, pain psychology class, that focally targets pain catastrophizing, recognizing that this is a really important construct, recognizing that we need to dismantle some of these barriers to psychological treatment for pain. And so what I did was really distill out what are the most critical elements and compress uh, this CBT treatment, this pain psychology treatment, into a two-hour class. And so individuals learn the same information I've just shared with you, how to de-amplify pain processing, how to calm their own nervous system. And um, the last thing I'll say about this is if anyone is interested in this single session uh, class for pain psychology, I am... Um, we, we have a, a large NIH uh, R01 grant. We're studying this class further now. In March, mid-March of 19, I am uh, doing a training at Stanford for anyone who has interest in learning this manualized treatment and becoming certified in it. I don't intend to make money off of this class. There may be a nominal fee just associated with running the workshop at Stanford, but the, essentially it will be free, other than the fact that you have to get to Stanford. But I'm very happy to share the information. Okay, so often I'll be asked, well, which, you know, okay, you know, I'm sold, I want to do, uh, you know, integrate in some behavioral medicine or psychological treatments, which one is most efficacious? Well, you know, the best evidence exists, exists for pain CBT, but there's a lot of uh, more recent studies that are showing equivalence with MBSR, with um, acceptance and commitment therapy as a variant of um, CBT, this being a study recently published in JAMA, which showed relative equivalence of it. So when people ask me that question, which one is best, I always say, well, it's the one your patient will do, <laughs> you know? Because, you know, so ask your patients, you know, which one, you know, you can talk to them about the distinctions between them, but it's really, you know, it's hard to go wrong here. So if patients are more likely to engage with one versus the other, that's what's most important. Um, and there are some specific considerations for each, um, for each treatment in terms of whether insurance covers it or not. Um, and so, and, you know, MBSR and the chronic pain self-management program, for instance, are not covered by insurance. And most, most patients can't afford to pay those costs out of pocket. But if um, you're working with individuals who are at Kaiser, uh, at the VA, or in a closed payer system such as Intermountain Health, they nicely offer a whole breadth of these um, services. So um, if you ask me who needs psychological treatment for pain, my response is I believe that everybody does. I think we can all benefit from better understanding the role of psychology in the experience and treatment of pain. This, you know, unfortunately, we wait until all of these treatments have been tried and then we send people to the pain psychologist, and that 
leaves patients feeling blamed or judged or they feel like maybe they failed or that there's nothing left for them. And so I imagine the day where psychology is integrated in the front end, and that's really um, what I advocate for. Um, so how you can set your patients up for success. Um, as I just mentioned, you can introduce these concepts at the outset of your work with them, whether you're a physician or a psychologist, regardless of your discipline or training, um, introducing this right up front and, and that this is just a part of how pain is treated. They're not being singled out because they have mental health problems. It's just this is the process for becoming empowered to best control your own experience. Um, and so really engaging individuals around these concepts, asking them you know, what they're willing to commit to, providing them with options to engage is really critical. So um, recently I was asked um, by Nature, what, what do we need in pain research and care? You know, what's missing? And really, and unsurprisingly, because now you all know me, <laughs> is that I say we need to better integrate psychology into our understanding of what pain is, and then therefore how we're addressing pain. And we need to give patients access to these pretty basic, often pretty basic psychological strategies so that they can start learning how to de-amplify, how to treat their own distress, and how to start steering their brains and their nervous systems towards relief. Again, it's not gonna cure their medical conditions, but people need skills and tools so that they're not simply relying on a pill bottle alone. And this has been a focus of my work, is helping people just have a range of options so that they're not just focused on um, opioids, for instance. And so I'm just gonna tell you, um, just in a, a brief couple of minutes, because I know I'm like right at time, and if you're really interested in the opioid stuff, you can come to um, my workshop this afternoon too. But what I'll mention is, you know, now we have the climate of opioid tapering in the United States and a lot of rules, and um, patients are being told that they need to stop or rapidly reduce their opioids. And what is their number one fear? What are patients' number one concern about stopping their opioids or reducing them? Pain. I heard pain. More pain. Of course, right? I mean, of course. Absolutely. Why wouldn't they? We tell them, oh, we're going to prescribe this for your pain. Oh, wait, we're going to take that away. The natural question is, what are you going to do for my pain? And patients also fear having withdrawal symptoms. And so, you know, there is a persistent mindset around stopping opioids that, um, you know, it's really hard to do in the outpatient setting. It requires a lot of resources. We, we probably need to send them inpatient if they're on high doses. If people have been taking opioids for a long time, um, they're not likely to do well tapering their opioids. And that, of course, tapering will unmask baseline pain. That's um, the persistent fear. When we take a look at the data, what we see is that when patients reduce their opioids, often pain actually improves. 
I mean, this study showing, this is not the only study, multiple studies now showing that pain actually improves when opioids are reduced. But here's the caveat. This was an, this was an inpatient um, intensive you know, treatment program, the type of treatment program that none of your patients, none of my patients are gonna have access to. Because we're probably, most of us are just working with people you know, in a community-based clinic setting. But this suggests that when opioids are reduced the right way, that pain is not increased. And we also see that there haven't been good data to guide opioid tapering, and most opioid tapers and guidelines are too aggressive for our patients who have been taking opioids long term. And so uh, earlier this year, we published this study in JAMA Internal Medicine looking at, um, we aimed to do a community-based opioid tapering study. And so we, um, we simply invited individuals in a clinic, all patients taking opioids. This is a clinic where 90% of the patients in the clinic were taking opioids. This was in Colorado. And we invited them to partner with their physician and implement a patient-centered opioid tapering program in which they would have a high degree of control over the process. We would go slowly. The goal was not zero opioids. The goal was to get you to your lowest comfortable dose over four months, four months. And this was when a lot of people were being tapered in a matter of weeks. So four months felt pretty generous at the time, not so much anymore, but. Um, and so this was a pragmatic study, meaning that we went into the clinic and altered their clinical care, and then we studied them to see how well they did. And here's what we found. Well, these are the um, data that we collected from people. We, of course, we got pain intensity and we got their morphine equivalent daily dose and a, a host of other characteristics. And we collected their data at two different time points, when they enrolled in the study baseline and four months later. And so what you'll see here is that this is a pretty typical sample um, at least in our world, of only treating people with pain. Um, Middle-aged, on opioids, six years on average, but a range of up to 38 years. Moderate pain intensity, um, over 35% of the sample taking mar using marijuana. And the morphine equivalent daily dose, the median, was 288. So pretty close to 300. And if you look at that range, 60 to um, over a gram. And so we put them through the patient-centered opioid tapering. Just to give you an idea, we invited 110 patients. 82 said, yeah, I'll, I'll try this, which I thought was astounding. Um, but in fact, all 82 didn't. Only 68 uh, chose to begin the program. And of those 68 who started the tapering program, 51 completed, which means they gave us their uh, data at the end. So we had a 25% attrition rate, which is actually quite low if you do any type of studies. It's, it's similar to any other type of study, but this was an opioid tapering study. And so here's what we found. We found that um, people substantially reduced their opioid dose over four months, on average in half. Um, but here's the bigger story. Each individual dot is an individual patient. And what you see here is that um, e initial opioid dose is um, on the x-axis. And what you see is that uh, the initial opioid dose did not predict 
taper response. What that means is that even patients on high-dose opioids were equally likely to be successful with reducing their opioids over four months when this was conducted in a patient-centered way. And here is uh, the data for pain. We found that um, people did not experience increases in pain, even though their opioids were reduced on average by half. We had 16 patients that reduced their opioids below 90 milligrams daily, four patients who tapered off their opioids completely in four months, um, with the majority showing not only increases in pain, but actually patients showed improvements in pain. When you look at, um, when you look at it as, uh, at the, the absolute dose uh, change from baseline to the end, we see that the pain actually improves. Now, I didn't report this pain improving in the JAMA paper because I wanted to be super conservative as we're introducing this concept to the public. Um, right now, we are um, conducting a much larger study on this, which I'll tell you about in a moment. But so here, you know, dose decreases significantly, but all of the psychosocial factors really aren't changing. And so this is where we recognize that it's not just about reducing opioids. We want to help our patients live better in the context of pain. And so this is where our next step in this research is this um, study that's funded by the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. And what we are doing in this study is that we are studying 1,300 patients taking long-term opioids in four states, Colorado, Arizona, um, California and Utah, and we um, have a, a study, it's called the EMPOWER study, and anyone who comes into the EMPOWER study will work with our EMPOWER physicians and nurses to slowly reduce their opioids over one year. So if you have any patients that you think might be good candidates for patient-centered opioid tapering, you can either come to the workshop today where we're going to teach you how you can implement this, or you can simply refer patients to our EMPOWER study. You can go to empower.stanford.edu and uh, learn more about that. But I think the good news is that we're discovering some scalable options to help patients. In the EMPOWER study, we're implementing this slow taper over one year. That JAMA study was over four months. So we're extending it out greatly to allow patients expansiveness in reduction. Okay, two summary slides and I'm done. Um, so psychopathology predicts pain intensity, duration of pain, and treatment response. Pain is a psychosensory experience. Psychological factors strongly alter the trajectory of pain, and this is really where we have an opportunity to help our patients, um, because many of these psychological factors are malleable, they're treatable, and we have the uh, treatments now to help our patients. To treat pain better, address the whole person other than just medicating the uh, one dimension of the pain. Behavioral treatments are low risk, empowering, and can reduce uh, need and use of opioids. Um, and you know, the last thing I'll just say is that it can be so helpful right at the front 
of your relationships with all patients to really begin talking about introduce behavioral medicine and psychology on the front end of the treatment and partner with your patients and helping them learn more about it and helping them gain access to these various treatments and techniques. Um, and last thing I'll say, we have a workshop later today, and I'd like to thank my colleagues and collaborators. And if there are any questions, Brad has a microphone, and I'm happy to take any questions either. Um, yeah, I think there's one over here. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little hard of hearing, so it'll help me if, if you... Okay, uh, can you hear me? I can. Um, behavioral medicine um, and pain management, psychological pain management, you talk about putting it on the front end. Across the country, over the past probably 10 years, but more likely now, there's a lot of work on ERASC and enhanced recovery after surgery. Yeah. And one of the more important things about reducing pain is the education prior to surgery. Yes. So do we introduce this preventative yep. type style, you know, even further up front. Yeah, so, so the question is in regards to surgery. So some of my research is integrating. I've uh, developed some treatments. It's, it's called My Surgical Success, where patients can go to a website and learn about these concepts in advance of their surgery, begin a self-treatment program. It's essentially no cost. Um, we need more programs like this. So your, your point about enhanced recovery after surgery, can we back that up and introduce patients to treatments so that they have a better response to surgery? Absolutely. You know, so that's a great question. We'll have to talk offline. The, the question was, can other hospitals use it? We um, just finished a randomized controlled trial in women undergoing surgery for breast cancer at Stanford Hospital. We demonstrated that getting this uh, my surgical success relative to a health education control enhances time to opioid cessation after surgery. Now we're studying this like the next iterative step. So. Um, my uh, organization right now is interested in studying it, so I'd be happy to talk to you and see if we could partner in this. Um, we do have some options, even though I can't just give you the link to the, to the site right now. There are ways for us um, to work together so that I can get you the information. Yeah. Oh, question back here. Yeah. Yes, oh, I wish I had brought flyers. I really regret that. It's empower.stanford.edu. And so, how long is that going for? At this oh, point? three and a half years we're enrolling. We just started in July. We would love your patience. Um, what you need to know about that is that when patients come into Empower, we actually take over their opioid prescribing for a year. And you said Arizona is one of your it is, but here's the thing about Arizona. It's at the Phoenix VA. So they have, I know. And so unfortunately, your, your patient probably isn't a VA patient. I have a few. Okay. So. 
Yeah, so um, it's being run through primary care at the Phoenix VA, at Intermountain Health in uh, Layton and around the Salt Lake City area, Stanford University primary care and pain clinics, and also in some private clinics in Colorado, in Denver, Frisco, and Edwards. Seven different clinics, yeah. Yeah. Any other questions? Questions? I'm incredibly impressed. Thank you so very much for everything you spoke on and all your effort and research. My question to you, I'm a pain psychologist, particularly yeah. at the Biloxi VA, which was the number one prescriber of opiates in the nation in 2013. Um, but I do assessments often for a variety of reasons and the whole catastrophizing thing, I'm using the PCS, yeah. but do you have any measurements that you would add to that that you would suggest to really target in on that catastrophizing for me to use to, for when I'm doing individual treatment to make sure that the catastrophizing is getting targeted for when I'm doing my groups and also for like spinal cord stimulator evaluations? Yeah, um, so great questions. I think, you know, it's, it's kind of a broader answer. I, I go into this in much more detail in, um, in the APA book that I just wrote where I have whole sections on psychological uh, pain-specific psychological factors that um, should be assessed and addressed. Catastrophizing certainly one of them. Um, Self-efficacy and locus of control, absolutely. Um, you also just want to be assessing generally for uh, level of depression, anxiety. You know, obviously you're going to do your psychological assessment to see if there's underlying factors that need to be treated, such as PTSD. If we don't identify and treat PTSD, it's going to be really hard to get improvements with pain. Um, sleep, uh, another critical factor. And some of our more recent uh, research has been looking at relationship factors and how guilt and worry about our role and identity in a relationship can be impeding our ability to deliver self-care that we need to be delivering. So, and we found that this is more um, impactful in women. So as an example, you can teach all of the best behavioral information to patients, but if that person is feeling so guilty that they're not able to take the 20 minutes a day to do what they need to do to help themselves or to prioritize their self-care, then that's a fundamental impediment to the oper operationalization of your information. So we want to be looking at the person in their whole environment. What are their relationships like? Are there any barriers to them actually taking care of themselves? And this is really tough for people living with chronic pain when they're normally in a caretaker role, a mother, a father, and now they're not able to deliver that care to others as they used to. Um, so I, I can send you a paper on that. It's, it's, it's been published. It's called The Care Scale. Yep. Any other? Oh, they, this APA book, it's Psychological Treatment for Patients with Chronic Pain. There's flyers out um, front, or you can have this one here. Um, it's, it's published from the American Psychological Association, just came out last month, and they're uh, offering a 25% discount. So if you, if you get it through a pain week code discount. Uh, no, no, that's correct. Now, there is, 
The, you know, the only thing I'll say is that there is a, at the coping, uh, coping skills questionnaire, there is a catastrophizing subscale in that measure, and it's six items. Um, but, you know, the, those are really it. We, we recently developed a daily pain catastrophizing scale, but it only assesses thoughts and emotions in the previous 24 hours. And I think you're looking for something more general. Right, right. Yeah. Sure, sure. Any other qu a question here? Have you heard any pointers on how to get people from primary care to accept Yeah. You know, um, that is a great question. So the question was how um, <laughs> any tips for getting primary care patients? to have greater receptivity to behavioral medicine referral. I, I find that it starts with the messaging in the clinic. So if you can get the primary care clinics to have brochures, to have posters, to normalize it, um, you can give classes. I, when I was back at uh, Oregon Health and Science University, as, as a pain psychologist, I would go into the primary care clinics and about every couple months, I would give a free pain psychology class. And it's sort of not threatening because you only have to come for two hours. And I would get a lot of people who are curious, who just wanted to learn, but they're not necessarily signing up for therapy, which I think is, um, you know, is definitely a barrier for people, but if you can give an in-service or give a free class, then once you're in front of patients, you can really work on establishing rapport, giving the information in a non-threatening way so that they don't feel blamed or judged. You can talk to them about the benefits and the pathways that you offer. I found that when I would give those classes, there was always naysayers, but there were many people who would just say, sign me up, can I, come, can I start seeing you individually, or how can I continue this practice? But it really, what you're getting at fundamentally comes to a core point that we need a cultural transformation. Um, we need the primary care physicians and even the pain physicians to also be thinking and speaking about psychology differently, normalizing it on the front end, basically setting expectations. This is how pain is best treated, and our expectation is that you'll engage in this because we're invested in you having the best outcomes. It's like we're here to partner with you, and we're gonna give you all of these resources to help you get there. Um, but unfortunately, that's, we're not there yet, but that's, I believe that's what's needed. Oh, totally, absolutely, no question about it. I mean, patients hate the term pain catastrophizing. Um, a lot of patients hate the term psychology. Like psychology is, uh, they perceive it as stigmatizing or pejorative. I would love for us to just call it sort of like, you know, empowerment classes, you know? Or um, self-management's a great term but um, pain relief classes, that's a nice way to go, and take psychology off of it altogether, even though that's what it is. Um, but it's really about coming, using patient-centered language that, they're, that they can receive and feel good about, I think will go a really long way. Yeah, any other, there's one question way back here. 
Um, the CBT classes, do you mean um, the single session or do you mean the eight session normal CBT? No, the one that we did in March. Oh, shoot me an email. Um, so I think my email's on the first slide. It's really easy to find my email address on the internet. If you send me an email, I'll send it to my administrative associate. We'll get you on the list and um, we'll send you details as they come. But right, it's scheduled for March 15th and 16th. So pencil that in if you're interested. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah, one here. Um, thank you so much for your time. Sure. Uh, and you kind of already answered this some, but uh, if you had a patient who for sure thought that any reduction in opioids would be detrimental, that they couldn't tolerate it at all, what would you think would be the first step? What do you usually take them through? Oh, man, you should come to the workshop this afternoon. I'm gonna, that's exactly what we're talking about. Um, and I have a... A ton, like six pages of handouts on how to talk to patients, scripts and tips for that. Um, but I, I will just, you know, kind of give you two little highlights of that. Um, it's really important to share the data with them. So share with them the results of this JAMA study. Um, these were real world patients. Nobody was cherry picked. They were on high dose opioids. This was a real medical population and most of them did well. What our formula for opioid reduction is micro dose reductions for the first month at least. And if you have someone who's super, super anxious, you might want to extend that further. Um, because what we're treating at that point is just their anxiety. And so we want to go so slowly with the taper that they, we want to prevent any withdrawal symptoms. And we want to, essentially we're countering a perception that this is going to be harmful. There's so much nocebo. And if we can provide them with evidence to the contrary, then we can start shepherding them forward. Um, but I think, you know, the other thing is also opioid reduction. Most people here know opioids, you're taking them away. And so for you to say, no opioids is not the goal. It's not zero opioids. We just want to see if we can get you down 10 milligrams over three months or, you know, whatever. I'm making it up. But, you know, it's just to shift them out of a concrete mindset and see if you can start to work with them a little bit. And then once you can start to engender some trust, not just trust with you, but trust with their own body that, okay, I can do this. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is that if somebody is super anxious, it's critical that you give them some anxiolytic skill set. So give them the relaxation audio file, give them something to address this fear because it will come up repeatedly. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. So I think I'm going to stop there. Um, I am way over, and I, uh, I have just a few minutes before I'm supposed to be somewhere else. So... <laughs>